Amen. So we're continuing in our series in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Last week we went over a very famous account, remember, Daniel and the lion's den. That was pretty much the end of our narrative, like the, the story type account. Now, uh, that, that took place in the beginning of King Darius's reign, which was the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Now there's a big transition. Now, as we get into chapter 7, there's a big transition in the book, and it comes in two ways. The first is it starts to backtrack. It goes back in history for a bit. So in the next few chapters, what's going to happen is we're going to see dreams and visions given to Daniel, but they were actually given back like so now we're in the Medes and Persians in chapter 6 we're going back to Babylon to the Babylonian reign actually and uh, so basically we're going to see some of those prophecies in the dreams they're going to be already prophecies meaning they already happened for us and there's also going to be not yet prophecies so that's where the transition chapter 7 normally actually it's kind of interesting because as you study through the end times and this is a, a you know a struggle for me in the sense of uh, you know when I when I and I've said this to you before when I come up to preach I pray that as we go through the scriptures there's something for your head there's something for your heart and there's something for your hand something that inspires you something that you learn and something for you to go and do well, end time stuff is kind of challenging because it's a lot of head stuff. And some people are like really into end times. They're like, yeah, the end times. And some people are just like, I don't really care about that. So here's the, the good happy medium is you should learn about it. You should know about it because Jesus talks about it, right? Jesus talks about it. But so much of the New Testament urges us till we see the day approaching. So we should kind of learn what's going on, what's to come. So the challenge then again is not to just stick with the head knowledge, but how do we get inspired by a lot of these things? So what we're going to do is we're going to pick up in Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. It says this, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. So remember, now we're going back, right? During the Babylonian rule, King Belshazzar, remember, he was the king that saw the writing on the wall. So that's where we're back in there. So Daniel had another dream and vision we didn't know about when we studied that in chapter 5. So it goes on. It says this. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So Daniel, again, lays in his bed, sees this vision. Four winds of heaven and a great sea. So what's going on here? The four winds is used in scriptures in two different ways. This term four winds is used in scripture in two different ways. The first is the universality of something. So meaning this is describing something that's worldwide. The four winds, kind of like the four corners of the earth. It's, it's figurative language here. Okay? Jesus uses this term in Matthew 24, 31 when he refers to Israel being regathered at the end times. And we're going to talk about all that stuff in the weeks to come. But he uses this term four winds when he talks about Israel being regathered in the end times from the four winds. The second four winds is used to describe divine involvement or divine activity, meaning God's hand in this passage shows the four winds of heaven. Like this is something that God is causing to happen. So when Daniel's laying, he said, I saw this vision of my mind, and behold, there were four winds of heaven. 
So Daniel essentially is saying his vision is a worldwide event that the one true God actually is involved in. Now, the second term, great sea, is a term used for Gentile nations, meaning non-Jewish peoples. The term waters are used in Isaiah 17, 12 through 13, to describe many people. And then in Revelation 17, 1, verse 1 and verse 15, to describe Gentile nations. So basically what he's saying here is, we're seeing something stirring out of the Gentile nations. Many people out of the Gentile nations, meaning the non-Jewish people. Now, some of you are wondering, how in the world is this significant? How is this significant? Well, let's look. It says this. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Now, these beasts that came up out of the sea were Gentile nations, right? These were the Gentile nations. And now we'll see this is going to be another version of the statue dream vision. Do you remember the statue dream vision? Do you remember that? That was the dream in Daniel 2, and each thing represented. So the head was Babylon, the gold head, head of gold was Babylon, and that actually happened. The reign was 605 to 539 BC. Medo-Persia was the chest and arms of silver, 539 to 331 BC, already happened. Uh, belt and thighs of bronze, that was Greece, 331 through 168 BC, already happened. That was Alexander the Great. And then Rome won, which is the legs of iron, 168 BC to 476 AD. I mean, Rome was, they were there for a while, right? This was under where Jesus got crucified. Remember, Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross. So now what, what, what's happening here is this is going to be a retelling of this, but in a little bit of a different way. So we're going to go through that. We're going to harmonize through it. Remember, this is already stuff. This stuff already happened. For Daniel, it wasn't already because he was getting this vision during the head of gold during Babylon. So he didn't know, you know how this was going to shake out. But we know now because historians and biblical scholars can look back and be like, that's that, that's that, that's that. And they make all those connections for us, right? So we don't have to make all those connections. We can learn from their knowledge. So then he says this. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked. Its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to him. Now, think about, remember what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon? Do you remember that nasty vision of him, like, growing the feathers and then all of a sudden? So you see kind of like some of the parallels here? Well, here we go. So comparing the visions of the statue in, in chapter 2 and the beast in chapter 7. The first, Babylon, is the gold head. Well, guess what? This also represents Babylon, the lion with eagle's wings. So this is in, in, the line, in line with Babylon, what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar, and his pride was broken down and brought back up. But we know that Babylon eventually fell, and we're going to learn more about that. It says this, and behold, another beast, the second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. Now, I mean, we got to stop right here for a second. Could you imagine being Daniel? Could you imagine, like, I mean, I've said this before during this. I've had weird dreams in my life, right? You've all, we've all had weird dreams. You wake up and you're like, what was that? Could you imagine 
being Daniel, and he hears this, or he sees this. So the lopsided nature of this bear was the Persians were stronger. Now, this is going to be the Medes and the Persians. So let's look. It says the Medes and the Persians, they were the chest and arms of silver on that statue. So now they're this lopsided bear. Well, why is the bear lopsided? Well, the Persians were stronger than the Medes. Remember when we went back and the king couldn't change his decree? He was the king of the Medes. And I said he couldn't change his decree about Daniel going into the lion's den because he would have had a big problem with Cyrus the Persian. Well, here is part of the problem. This lopsided bear, the Persians were way stronger. So they would have just wrecked the Medes. So he's like, I can't change the decree because I don't feel like getting wrecked. It's not on my list of things to do today. So the lopsided nature of this bear was the Persians were stronger and the ribs and the devouring of flesh are the conquest of the Medes and the Persians, the conquests they had. Now we're going to deal with the Medes and Persians again, so don't think you lost them, because in chapter 8 we're going to deal with them again. So then it goes on. After this I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to him. Now, most agree, this is Greece. Greece, remember, they were the bronze belly and thighs in chapter 2. Well, now they're the leopard with four heads and wings. Now, this is Greece, and it's pictured here as fast-moving, this leopard. Fast-moving conqueror, Alexander the Great. Historically, people know that, Alexander the Great. Fast-moving conqueror. When he died in 323 B.C., his empire was actually divided into four parts. Okay, remember that scripture said that it was a four-headed beast. Okay, it was four-headed after that. So then it goes on and says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So what I did here is I took, see, it says 7a, I took the first part, because this verse actually should be split in two, and it is, I am splitting it in two. The first three quarters of this verse refer to Rome 1, as we saw here, Rome 1, the legs of iron, dreadful, strong, and terrifying. It doesn't even say what this beast looks like, it just says, it's a bad beast. It's dreadful, strong, and terrifying. Now, this refers to the Roman Empire. It was terrifying. It killed and persecuted many. The early Christians were persecuted under the Roman Empire. Jesus was crucified under the Roman Empire. I mean, the Roman Empire was, you know, the strongest. Everybody, I mean, feared the Roman Empire. So at the end of 476 A.D., the Roman Empire fell. Now, this really ends our already prophecies. Remember, these are already for us. So when we look back in history, we see these already happened. But for Daniel, they were not. So now what we do is we enter into the not yet prophecies. And this is where kind of, you know, for most of us that are interested in biblical prophecies, it kind of gets exciting. Because we live in this world, we see these things happen, and we're like, you know, what was predicted? Where are we? Like, what's going on? So before I want, before we continue, I want to give you what I believe to be the accurate end times timeline and where we are now on that timeline. 
So where the next verses will take place in Daniel and it really sets the stage for our study in Daniel. Now, I'll just tell you this. I want to share with you what I believe is biblically accurate view of the end times. It's actually called, if you're, if you're interested in this, if you're studying, it's actually called the pre-trib, pre-millennial view of the end times. Now, I will say this. Not all Christians believe it this way. Not all Christians interpret it this way. And to be quite honest with you, I've been studying this stuff for over 20 years, 25 years. I'm really not interested in debating it. I'm pretty set on what I believe the scriptures teach. I'm not interested in putting other people down. I'm not like, oh, those people, they don't know what they're... I'm not interested in that either. I'm just convinced through studying the scriptures that these views that I'm going to share with you consider all the end time scriptures. Because when you're studying the end times, it's not just Daniel, it's not just Revelation. There's so much else in prophecy that kind of connects it together. So scholars have been debating this stuff, studying this stuff, going through this stuff. But I will say this, they are open-handed issues, meaning this, if you believe this stuff differently, it doesn't affect your salvation, okay? It, has, it really has nothing to do with the fact that a person believes in Christ as their Savior or not. So this end times interpretation isn't what saves you. Jesus is what saves you. But I'm going to teach you this. When you hear this from the pulpit, you're going to hear this end times viewpoint. It's just the way it is, okay? And if the church decides to get rid of me and find somebody else that teaches the other way, I'll shake my head and go, okay? So, but here's the truth. Here's the truth. I believe this viewpoint is as biblically accurate as it comes. So, without further ado, and I know you're probably waiting for this, and you've probably seen this before, the infamous timeline of the end times. So let me just kind of explain to you. The cross represents Christ being crucified. See that little parentheses there? Church age? Well, you'll see that coincides with Revelation chapter 1 through 5. That is what we are in right now. We are in the church age. During the church age, our responsibility as believers is to be a light for the message of Christ. That's why we have a church. We're here together to work together and to get the message of Jesus out. The most important thing is people believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Jesus Christ said, all who believe will have eternal life. The responsibility of the church age is for us to do that, to preach the gospel. Obviously, discipleship and all the other purposes of the church are there, but the main issue with the church age is we're supposed to spread the good news about Jesus. The next event that we are waiting for is what we call the rapture of the church. Now, this is where a lot of people differ, but this is where I want to basically appeal to you and say, Jesus actually tells us that he keeps the believers from the hour of tribulation. So the next event, so when you hear me say things like when Jesus comes back, what he actually does is he appears in the air, he raptures the church, he brings up all who believe at that time period. The ones who have died in Christ already will be risen and raptured at that time. But the scriptures also teach us this, that when we're absent from the body, we're present from the Lord. So there's a lot of stuff there that, you know, as we move on forward and stuff like that about like the resurrected body and stuff, we'll get into later on. 
So the next thing, so we're waiting for the rapture of church. So when I say we're waiting for Jesus to come, this is what I'm waiting for. And like, you've probably heard me joke, like, you know, as, as a believer, as a person who has a wife that's a believer and three kids that are a believer in a minivan, I always say that the ideal is like, we all go driving up in the minivan, you know, all together at the same time. We don't have to mourn each other's death. We don't know when that's going to happen. So Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour. The issue with what I'm teaching you with this end times timeline, there's actually nothing that needs to happen for this event to happen. There's nothing that we're looking for right now. Like people be like, oh, well, Russia's attacking Ukraine. What does that mean as far as the end times? Like, really, it doesn't say. It doesn't talk about it. We know there's wars. We know there's love grows cold. We know all these things happen, but there's nothing that we can point at that happened, now we know Jesus is going to come. Because guess what? Then we would know the day or the hour, right? And that's why you have these like radio preachers. You probably heard Harold Camping. Long, he's like, Jesus is going to come back on May, whatever, blah, blah, a year. And I always always think, well, I know Jesus is definitely not coming back that day, okay? Even if he wanted to, he's like, well, no, I'm not coming back now because he said so. So I'm changing it up here. So here's the thing. We have to realize that this, the return of Christ is imminent. We don't know when that's going to happen. So then after that, there'll be seven years of tribulation. And this is where, as we study through Daniel and as I connect the dots in the weeks to come, this is where a lot of this stuff is going to happen. In two weeks, we're going to deal with the Antichrist. This is where the Antichrist is. But the interesting thing about the Antichrist, and just to kind of get off on a little bit of a tangent, so if we're waiting for the rapture, the rapture could happen tomorrow, right? We can go into the seven years of tribulation. It doesn't necessarily have to happen right away, which is interesting. Like the rapture can happen. There could be a gap of time and then the tri tribulation actually start. But this is interesting because the Antichrist takes his rise during that seven years. The truth of the matter is, is the Antichrist could be alive and well right now today in this world. Which, you know, I remember when one of my professors said that, I was like, dang, that's pretty messed up, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, when you think about that. So this seven years of tribulation, this is so important, too, because when people start to say, like, oh, we're in tribulation now, it says this, and Daniel actually says it, it says this is like a time that the earth has never seen before. And then some people will be like, well, look what's going on over in Ukraine. Look what's going on in this world. Let's go all the way back to Rome. Do you know what they use as street lights in Rome? Burning Christians, okay? They would put Christians on poles, tie them up there, and light them on fire to light the roadways. So when you say to yourself, well, this is a time like really that's never been before, there was way worse things happening back then. But now when we get to the tribulation time, then we have to say, dang, if that was happening back then, and the scriptures tell us this is like a time that the, that the world's never seen before, this has got to be pretty heavy. Actually, in one passage, it says the blood is up to the horse's bridle. That's how bad the tribulation is. So some of the stuff that we're going to study in Daniel is going to happen in the beginning part of the, of the tribulation. And then uh, what's going to wind up happening is the mid part and the... the um, the Antichrist and all of that, we're going to see that play out. And then we're going to see, even in today's passage, about the millennial reign. So basically, at the end of the rapture, 
at the end of the rapture, then there's the tribulation. And then after the tribulation is done, this is when Jesus comes for his official second coming to place his feet on the earth. And there it is. Okay, there it is. He'll place his feet on the earth. He'll reign as the king of kings for a thousand years here on earth. And this is where a lot of people differ. They say, well, that's a spiritual reign. The problem with that is then when you go to Revelation 20, you see a thousand years, a thousand years, seven times it says it in Revelation 20. So in order for us to, to take a literal, a literal view of the scriptures and actually look and see and connect all the dots, we kind of have to believe, in my opinion, that Jesus reigns on this earth for a thousand years. Okay, so I'm gonna, I think I'm stopping right there. Yeah, I'm stopping right there. We're going to get back to Daniel. But here, here's the thing. As believers in the church age, the next event that we're waiting for, like I said, is the rapture. So when I say we're waiting for Jesus, that's what we're looking for. So now as we move on in Daniel 7, the rest of this chapter are these future events and will take place during the tribulation time and will go right into the millennial reign. So now we're in this fourth beast, this fourth beast, and it was different from all the other beasts. Remember, the first part of that beast was like dreadful and terrifying. Again, it was just pouncing on everybody. It was Rome 1. So it was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had 10 horns. I don't know if you remember weeks and weeks ago, I talked about this 10-king federation that arose up, and that was the feet of that statue, the 10 toes. So 10 horns, and I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and mouth speaking of great things. So now back to our comparison chart. We have the Antichrist. The Antichrist, and notice there's no mention of the Antichrist in the statue, but now we have this little horn. This is where the Antichrist is going to come up as the leader of this 10-king confederation. And we're going to go on. He says, then I looked at the thrones. Oh, okay. So we're going to get more into the Antichrist in two weeks. I don't want to get ahead of myself. We're going to look, get more into the Antichrist in two weeks. But what happens next now is Daniel has this vision of a scene in heaven that takes place during the end time of the tribulation. So basically, we see these beasts. We see this rise of this little horn, these ten kings, which we're going to get more into that in the weeks to come. But now, all of a sudden, Daniel sees this heavenly scene. Now, remember, like dreams are kind of weird, and you have dreams, and they're just like, you know, when you have a dream, and you're like, you know, I was in school, but then Pastor Mike was there. What was he doing in school? You know what I mean? That's kind of like what was going on here with these dreams and visions. So he's seeing these four beasts, and then all of a sudden, he sees this amazing scene in heaven, which had to be pretty comforting to him. So it says this, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. So now this is taking place in heaven, and the identity of the Ancient of Days is God the Father, because he lives through the entire course of human history. 
He lives through the entire course of human history. The white of his clothing and his hair represents purity, and the fiery throne is his glory, and it actually represents judgment. And some of you, like, did you catch that? The wheels? You're like, wheels? Like, what's, what's Jesus driving a hot rod or something? Well, here's the thing. There, it, wheels were normally on thrones because they were usually big, gargantuan, heavy, gold, silver, plated. So they actually had wheels on the thrones back in the day so they could actually move those thrones. But this is actually a short glimpse of the heavenly scene in Revelation 4 and 5. And then it goes on. It says, A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand, thousand served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were open. So these are angels, again, Revelation 4 and 5. These are angels around the throne. Possibly also redeemed people are added into that, like Christians or people that believed and are in heaven. Um, and the books represent the deeds done by the unbelievers by which they are judged by. Now, this is important. Theologically speaking, this is very important. When a person is in Christ, when a person believes in Jesus as their Savior, Jesus takes our sins upon himself and gives us his righteousness. You've heard me say this probably hundreds or if not thousands of times. Jesus takes our sin upon himself and gives us his righteousness. We are no longer judged by our sins any longer. Jesus took that judgment when he stretched out his arms on that cross. The unbeliever, and this is the sad part for the unbeliever, they are judged by the things that they've done here on this earth. They're judged by their sinful deeds. So basically, no one can say, well, I didn't do anything wrong, because Jesus could be like, well, you know, let's go to the book, okay, and see what, yeah, and, and not that Jesus, and, and the reason why it says these books were open is just kind of a reminder of there's a log of the sinful things that we do when we're not a believer. So Jesus doesn't need to, his memory jogs, he knows all the things that we've done, but basically no one can say, hey, Jesus, you know, I never really did anything that bad. I didn't murder anybody. I didn't beat anybody up. I didn't do anything bad. I just, you know, said a little couple of white lies here or there. I just did this. So basically what's happening here is this is a reminder that no one can say, I don't have any wrongdoing because Jesus says we all do. Like the scriptures tell us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So now what happens here, so from this heavenly scene, now we go back to earth. And it says this, I looked, then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. Now this is the fourth beast with the ten horns and then the little horn, which actually represents, uh, I didn't put that in there, I guess. Um, maybe I did. Um, which actually represents Rome too, okay? This is the Antichrist. And this is that 10-king federation. This all happens, right? In the beginning of the tribulation, that 10-king federation gets together. The Antichrist rises up, which we're going to talk about in two weeks. He rises up, leads that federation, okay? He's the leader. He's the one that everybody in the first three and a half years of the tribulation is going to be like, this guy's going to save us. 
This guy's going to help us. This guy's going to put an end to all this garbage that's happening. Here's another issue, too. And, you know, I'm just going to kind of go on like a little tangent here. But here's another issue. Think of the time that when the rapture happens, how do you think the world is going to respond to that? Okay, literally tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people disappear. Literally disappear into thin air. How do you think the world's going to respond to that? Well, I have a few guesses, okay? And some of it is going to be chaos. So when the Antichrist comes up and rises up and he's promising peace and he's promising unity, he's promising we'll all be this one world gathered together with these 10 kings and we'll all work together and we'll all figure things out and we'll all be able to be in community. We'll all be able to, as the bumper sticker says, coexist, right? We'll all be able to do that. Do you think people are going to take the bait? Heck yeah, you almost took the bait. You were like, that sounds good <laughs> when I was talking about it. So here's the thing. When he sets himself up as this kind of man of peace that's going to get us all together and then bang, turns on us, which we're going to talk about in the future, it, you're, you're, you see how this, this stage is being set. And, and here's what happens. Here's what happens. People will always ask me these questions. Well, what do you think of this? Is this like an end times prophecy? Or is this an end times prophecy? Or what about this? Or, you know, what about that? I just always basically say the same answer. These are all things that set the stage for things that will happen, for the things that are prophesied. Back, you know, when they came out with social security numbers, okay? You've never, do you even know where your social security card is? Okay, here's the thing. When, when, when they were giving out social security numbers, do you think Christians were like, that's like the mark of the beast. They're giving everybody a number, okay? And other Christians were probably like, yeah, that is like, and, and you know, so you hear these things, right, through the course of history, and it was a social security card, the mark of the beast? Of course not. But did it set the stage, okay? A credit card. We can pay things with our phone, with our credit card. We, we can pay things. You, you can pay right online, right? You can do all this stuff online. You don't need real cash, right? Is that the mark of the beast? No. But guess what? When the Antichrist rises up and says, oh, you know, nobody's going to be able to steal your identity. I'll give you this little mark right here or even here. People are going to be like, give it to me. I don't want anybody to steal my identity. You see how these things all just set the stage. So we can't point at specific things right now because we're not looking at the specifics as much as we're looking the grander scheme of things. So now it goes on to say this. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season of time. Now this is a reference, it kind of goes back again because now this beast with the little horn and the 10 horns has been destroyed and this is gonna be at the end of the millennial period. And, but then it mentions, what about those other beasts? What about Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece? What about those? Notice it says this. Their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season of time. That shows, right, that when Babylon fell, there was properties of Babylon still in the people, right? When Medo-Persia fell, there was properties of Medo-Persia still in the people. When Greece fell, there was properties of Greece still in the people. When Rome won fell, there was properties of peace, of the, of the people still in, you know, in society and culture. When this happens, when Jesus comes and he actually cleans house and the beast 
and the Antichrist is destroyed, there will be no sign, no sign of that rule any longer. So the first three beasts, even though their reign came to an end, there were still remnants. Okay, there we go. I put it in there. So that final one, God's kingdom. The stone that became a mountain, remember in the, in, the, um, in the statue, there was that big rock at the foot of the statue? The stone that became the mountain, the kingdom of the Son of Man, that's Jesus coming and actually destroying. And that will get us, remember back in our little thing when Jesus came back in the millennial reign? That's where we are. Okay, that's where we are. Jesus comes back. So what happens in these next two verses is at the end of the tribulation period, ushers in the thousand-year reign. And this is what it says. I saw another heavenly scene here. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. He came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. The Son of Man is Jesus. He referred to this title of himself multiple times in the Gospel accounts. In fact, in Luke, it was his favorite way to address himself. He says, the Son of Man... The Son of Man. And what he was talking about is the humanity that he had. So when Jesus came to this earth, Jesus always existed. When he came to this earth, he added human flesh to himself. So the Son of Man goes before the Ancient of Days, which is God the Father. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now this is so important to note that this passage clearly points to a kingdom that is ruled by Jesus. No one can destroy it and it's an eternal kingdom that starts with this thousand year reign. So important. No one's destroying Jesus' kingdom when he comes. Revelation 20 teaches us a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus on this earth. The Apostle Paul refers to the thousand-year reign when he speaks about Jesus coming the first time in the flesh because it was an already-not-yet statement that Paul made. Some of you might remember this. In Philippians 2, 8 through 11, it says, And he, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. I want to stop right there. That's what Jesus did when he came the first time. The Apostle Paul is referencing this. He's saying, this is what Jesus did. He came and he died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. Then it says, therefore God, the Father, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that happening right now? Is everybody bowing to Jesus right now? No. So here, here's the thing. So if people want to take like a spiritual view of the thousand-year reign, and they would actually say, this is what we're living in right now, do you see that here? In this world, I don't even see that in, in the town, okay? <laughs> Nevertheless, the entire world, I don't even see that actually in the American church, okay? Because people don't necessarily bow to what Jesus says and bow to him. So here's such an important point. This is an already, not yet. We can already see Jesus came, but not yet are everyone bowing to him. That's when his kingdom is ushering in. 
Again, questions will arise. People will ask. These are things that we should not divide as Christians about. Okay, just let me just tell you. Don't go arguing with your friend who's an amillennialist, doesn't believe. Like, don't go starting the fights with them. It's pointless. It literally is pointless because we have to remember, we always have to remember that we are on the same team with every other believer. Everyone who believes that Christ is our Savior, we are on the same team. And if our end times, or my, I'll call it mine, I'm going to say ours, like I'm hoping you're agreeing, but if my end times theology is right, if the next thing we're waiting for is the rapture of the church and we will be taken out of this earth before the time of tribulation, if somebody that I tell about Jesus believes in Jesus and in, during their lifetime the rapture happens, they are at home to be with the Lord, they're with Jesus, and they're not going through that seven years of tribulation. If they don't, guess what? They're going to have to go through a time that this earth has never seen before. And you know what? I couldn't even like want the worst person that I know to have to go through that. I couldn't even want, like, it's not even in me to want that for someone. So we're currently in the church age. Our responsibility is to tell other people about Jesus. Because as, when a person believes in Jesus, we're saved and secure for eternity. And we go where Jesus goes, and he keeps us safe. 